All right, thanks. How good is this? We get to use this room for the first time. <laughs> I feel like it's cheating, but oh well. Um, if you don't know me, my name's Michelle. There's a few faces I don't know. It's so good to see the para ladies. We missed you, but how good is it to have two churches coming together? Um, so, women and work. The reason um, we're doing this topic is because work um, is something we all do, right? Some of you did work this week and you got paid for it. You went somewhere or you did something and someone paid you. But some of you worked this week and you didn't get paid for it, right? You parented children or you built into a relationship. That is work as well. Some of us enjoy our work and some of us don't enjoy our work. Um, Some of us care for children during the day. Some of us are organising childcare for children. Some are part-time, casual, full-time. Some people are still in school thinking about work. Some are retired. Some are retired and now back into childcare. A recent study I read, which I thought was really interesting, said that the average person will spends 90,000 hours working in their lifetime, which is a third of your life, which is 54% of your waking hours spent working. And those figures are paid work. That does not even include unpaid work, like caring for kids or housework and things. So work is huge. It's a huge thing, and it touches every one of us in really unique ways, depending on the season that we are in. So... Before we dig into God's work, let's pray for his help in this and pray that he'll speak to us today. Lord God, we thank you that you are a good father and that you brought us here today because you have much to say on what it is to be a woman and what it is to work. So we pray today that you'll soften our hearts, help us hear from you and help us walk away encouraged to live into your vision for work. Amen. Okay, so let me um, tell you a bit about my story first. Um, like Em said, I have—I I would, I would say I've wrestled with work <laughs> for many years. Um, I grew up as a daughter of a butcher, so my dad was a butcher. Um, he, at the age of 15, youngest of 11, he dropped out of school, went and got an apprenticeship as a butcher, and he has been a butcher for over 50 years now. And my mother, she grew up in a very remote country town in New South Wales. And at 16, she escaped that town, came to Sydney, got a job in an insurance company and never left the insurance industry. So my um, parents had a really strong work ethic and they taught me what it is to work hard. And one thing they would always say to me as I was growing up, and I remember this so many times, they would say, Michelle, get a job and make sure that if it rains, you still get paid. (laughs) So basically, don't be a carpenter or a bricklayer or a concrete worker because if it rains, you don't get paid. Um, They were genuinely happy for me to do anything, anything at all, as long as it paid the bills at the end of the week. So that was sort of the vision I had of what work was meant to be. Then, growing up um, as part of the millennial generation, I had society and people telling me, you know what, Michelle, you could do anything. You could be and do whatever you want. So just go for it. Just whatever dream you have, chase that dream. So with my parents telling me to just do anything as long as you get paid and don't get rained out, and um, culture telling me to just go for it, the vision I had for work was do anything you like and get paid to do it. That is my vision for work. 
So, as a young adult woman, I finish school and I go into university and study a Bachelor of Arts. And then after six months, I quit. Then I went and did a business diploma. I went and got a job in a recruitment company. And after two weeks, I quit. <laughs> so I thought, oh, I'll go back to university. So I study a Bachelor of Health Science and I did that for one year. And then I quit. <laughs> then I went and did nursing. I did a Bachelor of Nursing for two years. And then I quit. <laughs> so then... <laughs> now I know you're like, why did Emma ask her to do this? So then I went and did a Bachelor of Primary Teaching and I finished that one. But then... <laughs> When I started teaching in schools, I thought, oh, like, I like it, but I don't love it. Um, and so I started to specialise. I did some more study in learning support. And then a few years of working full-time and studying, we, me and Simon had my first daughter, Harlow. And now six years on, I have two more daughters. I'm still studying and working in paid work in various ways and trying very hard not to quit. Um, <laughs> So, um, the vision I had for work that, my, that I had of do anything you like and get paid to do it made for many years of confusion and poor decision making. And to be honest, that was just exacerbated when I became a mother. You see, work for me was about doing anything I like and getting paid to do it. And then all of a sudden I had a newborn and it was really hard and I was trying to like it <laughs> and, and no one was paying me to do it. <laughs> so having a newborn for me was a brutal shock and a complete assault to my own comfort and my own independence. And then once I um, survived Harlow's first year of life, praise the Lord, people started asking me this question. Are you going back to work? And so then I started thinking, okay, well, should I be going back to work? What do I do for work? Raising this child feels like work. And so I started thinking through the answers to this and I was bombarded with different opinions and advice and articles and other people's convictions. And for me, it was good, but just really really disorientating and so that's when I just got to a point <clears throat> when Harlow was about one and I just said what do you think God what, what is your vision for work, me being a woman and a new mum what is your vision for work and God in his kindness and patience with me slowly showed me what his vision for work for my life was and so that is what I'm going to share with you today. And it is really a joy and a privilege to share this with you um, because I can honestly say God's vision for work is so much better and greater than anything that this world could ever offer us. So let's begin. Now, the structure of my talk is in two parts. <clears throat> I'm going to, the first part is going to be um, looking at a theology of work. And then the second part, we'll look at how we live out of that theology. Okay? Uh, is that too noisy? I don't know. Is it too noisy for people? Some people are saying yes. Will it be too stuffy for anyone? 
All right, four points today, ladies, for women and work. Our first point, we are going to look at work is our design. Our second point is work moves the world forward. Sorry, I'll take this. That's a bit better. Okay, point one, work is our design. Point two, work moves the world forward. Point three, work is cursed. And point four, work like Jesus worked. Those are the points we're going to go through today. And there is a lot of scripture we're going to be jumping around in today, which is why there is a printout for you. And that's in order of how I'm going to look at the scripture. So you should be able to follow along with that. And what I really hope today is that we can all walk away inspired by God's vision for work. And that is that God's vision for work is that we co-labour with God to redeem and restore all things. You are called to co-labour with God to redeem and restore all things. Okay, so let's begin. Point one, work is our design. So in order to trace a biblical theology of work and to really build a robust understanding of what the Bible says, we're going to start at the very beginning and spend some time in Genesis 1 and 2. So please read Genesis 1, verses 1 to 2 with me. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Okay, so God is there in the beginning, and God is creating. It says that in verse 2, the earth was without form and void. So God takes the earth in its unstructured, chaotic and uninhabitable form and he creates structure and order. He creates light, he separates night and sky, sorry, night and day, sky and earth, water and land, he creates vegetation and stars and sun and moon and living creatures. He creates a garden, the garden of Eden. Then he steps back from that creation, sees that it is good, and Genesis chapter 2 verse 2 says that on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. So work is there in the beginning. God is working. He is designing. He is engineering. He is building. God is a ecologist, a horticulturist, a zoologist, a designer. He creates and cultivates through work. And then in the midst of all his work, he creates us. He creates humans. So read with me Genesis 1, 26 to 27. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So you and I are created by God and we are created in his image. 
To be created by God means that we are created for relationship with him. We are created to experience his presence and his love and to worship him forever because he created us. And we are created in his image. The scripture says, in God's image, after God's likeness, which means that if God works, then we work. We see this design all through Genesis, and particularly in Genesis 2, verse 15. God created Adam. Then Genesis 2:15 says, the Lord took the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it and look after it. So because God works and because we are created in God's image, work is part of our design. And we see this playing out in the garden. One instance of this is Genesis 2, verse 19. So read that one with me. Genesis 2, 19. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. Now, I like we skim over that, but this is crazy because God has just created every living and breathing thing down to a molecular and cellular level with infinite wisdom and intelligence. And then he just asks Adam, who's contributed nothing <laughs> to the creation of the cosmos, to come and name the animals. God could have named them all by himself. He created them. But instead, he invites Adam to name the animals. And the reason he does this is because he loves Adam. He wants Adam to partner with him. God isn't interested in dictatorship or unilateral control, but rather he invites Adam in to co-labor with him in helping him create the garden and the world as we see it. Now, I was thinking about this and what it looks like in our day-to-day life, and as many of you know, I do have three daughters, and sometimes I ask them to cook with me. And one day I was asking them to cook. We were trying to make those healthy oat ball cookies or whatever they are. Um, And so I had them in front of me, and my eldest, Harlow, my five-year-old, she really wants to be the one to pour everything in. Um, and so she's trying to like lift up the big, heavy three-liter milk and trying to like get the flour, and it's just it's going everywhere, and all the measurements are out. And then Ivy, my two-year-old, like eats everything as we go. So she's eating the flour that Harlow's spilling and the raw egg, and then and then we start. We get to the point where we're rolling the balls, and my middle child, my three-year-old, she um, has some sensory challenges, so she scoops up the mixture, starts sort of rolling the balls, but then freaks out and just starts licking both hands everywhere. And so there's just cooking mixture everywhere and Ivy's eating it. And, it's just, and so then we wash her hands because she doesn't like it, but then she wants to do it. So then she puts her hand in again and freaks out again and starts flicking it. And, and then if we make them and they don't eat them. So, um, But why do I invite them to come cook with me? It would have been much more straightforward and easier and less messy if I just had made those cookies myself, right? The reason I ask my children and you ask the children in your life to cook with you is because you love them. You want them to be part of what you're creating. You want relationship with them. You want to be near them. And that is God's heart in the garden. Okay, so point one, 
Work is our design. We are designed to co-labor with God through work. We see this in Adam, Adam and Eve in the garden. But that work was meant to go somewhere, right? Making cookies with my daughters was meant to produce cookies. Work produces something. So that moves us to point two. Work moves the world forward. Okay. So, after God creates Adam and Eve, he blesses them. So, let's read Genesis 1.28 together. Genesis 1.28 says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, God obviously did not ask Adam and Eve to roll out a picnic rug and crack out some cheese and chat with the animals, did he? I think often we have that wrong image in our heads. Rather, the garden was purposefully incomplete but full of potential. Though it was paradise, the Garden of Eden, it was paradise unfinished. This is why God tells Adam and Eve, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion and work it. Move the garden forward. God is creative and cultivates his creation. So we too, being made in his image, are called to be creative and to cultivate and to make culture, to make something of this world. Our work moves the world forward to an ultimate end. And we know this ending don't we? Glenn talked about it on Sunday. So we're going to look at that ending now. So can you flip to the back of your Bibles or on the sheet? We're going to look at Revelation 21. So in Revelation 21, we read the revelation God gave John of what heaven is like. So let's start with Revelation 21 verses 2 to 3. John's saying, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. So, what is the ending? Is the paradise a garden? No. The new heaven is a holy city. If you read the rest of chapter 21, you see that this holy city has high walls and gates and inscriptions and foundations and every kind of jewel. God's intention was that the Garden of Eden would be cultivated through work to become a holy city. That was always his intention, to move a garden toward a city. The potential and raw materials that were in the garden has seemingly been cultivated. Genesis 2, verses 10 to 12 says, A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx are there too. So in the garden, you see these raw materials that are in the land. And now, look at Revelation, verses 19 to 21. 
The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third a gate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx. And now jump down to verse 21. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. Through work, these raw materials that are spoken about in the garden have seemingly been excavated and they're now used to adorn the new heaven, the city. And when I, when I realised this, this was mind-blowing for me, that God would use our work and had always plans to use our work. He could have just put us in a city, right, in the first place. That could have, he could have done that, but he didn't. He put us in the garden because his vision was that in our work we co-labour with him to redeem and restore all things. God says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth through growing families and communities and neighbourhoods and civilizations. He says, subdue through building business and cities and schools and hospitals. He says, have dominion by creating agriculture and industry and transportation. Tim Keller in his book, Every Good Endeavour, which is a very good book, says that God designed us to work by rearranging raw materials in such a way that helps the world to thrive and people to flourish. Some ladies in this room take raw materials of fabric and rearrange them to make clothing. Some of us take raw materials of systems in business and rearrange them to become services for people. Some of us take the raw materials of a naive child's mind and rearrange their reality to teach them and to train them. Just think of the seats you're sitting on, raw materials of plastic and aluminium and foam or whatever else makes a seat, so that you can sit, right? This realisation that God's vision for me was that I co-labour with him to redeem and restore all things, to move his world forward, it changed my life, completely changed my life. That question of, are you going back to work? It made no sense. Or the decision between being a stay-at-home mum or a working mum made no sense because everything is work. It all counts. I work when I go to the university and get paid to do so and I work when I make a lunchbox or change a nappy and don't get paid to do so. It's all work. And that is because all work moves the world forward. God designed us to rearrange raw materials of his creation to move his world forward to that holy city, however big or small that may be, paid or unpaid, however large or limited your capacity may be. It all counts because it's all his work and we we are co-labouring with him. Okay, let's move into the second part of the talk. So the theory and vision that God has for work sounds exciting, doesn't it? I get excited when I think about that. But the reality of work doesn't always match up, does it? Work is not always easy. Raising a small child can feel monotonous. The job you go to can feel soul-crushing. The energy you spend on a task might produce no outcome. Or that relationship you've been sowing into for years is still difficult. Work can be hard. 
rather than redemption and restoration, sometimes all we see is thorns and thistles. And that is because work is cursed. So that moves us to point three. Work is cursed. So after the creation comes the fall, Adam and Eve rejected God's rule over them, and as a result, work is cursed. But keep in mind that work is not the curse. Okay? We've just we've just seen it's there in the beginning. Work is there in the beginning. So rather than it being the curse, work along with family and relationships come under the curse and they become distorted by sin. God's design for humans to co-labor with him in creativity and cultivation now exists alongside pain and toil and thorns and thistles because of the curse. And in reality, when you look at the Genesis 3 account, Adam and Eve, they didn't choose God's vision for work. They chose another vision. They chose a vision that was about self. In this vision, work was not about co-laboring with God. It was about self-fulfillment. Look at Genesis 3, 5 with me and look at the lie that the serpent uses to deceive Eve. You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And the effects of this original sin have reverberated for years throughout the world and we feel them here today in our secular city of Sydney. Because of Genesis 3 and because we are sinners, we have taken God's vision and we've twisted it to make it about ourselves. And this twisted vision is a vision that work is all about you. This world's vision has exclusive humanistic ways of thinking. It will tell you that you do not need to co-labor with God, that he has nothing to do with what you do for work because... It's all about you. You can find meaning and significance all by yourself because you are completely self-sufficient. It's your skills, your desires, your dreams. God has nothing to do with it. And this vision, this world's vision, will tell you that, you know what, you should also express that self-sufficiency the way you want to. You should be completely independent. It's about you, your dreams, what makes you feel good. You just do you. And if any institution or anyone tries to stop you, well, that's oppressive and intolerant and discriminatory because work is about you. And as Christians, we live in this world. So that's not a vision that's out there. That's in the air that we breathe. We are affected by this. And not only that, but we are affected in our heart as well. Because not only when Adam and Eve sinned did they experience a change in the nature of their work, they actually experience the effects of sin in their heart as well. And so do we. As Paul says in Romans 7, we do what we do not want to do. And I know this all too well because I am daily tempted to make work all about me. You know, I... My husband walks in the door and he hasn't noticed all that I've done that day around the house. And so then I get frustrated and annoyed. Or my children take too long to get their shoes on and that affects my schedule and my to-do list and my routine. And so I get impatient 
and angry. Or I send my colleagues some work and they give me some constructive feedback and that affects me personally. And so then I start to feel anxious. When I live into the vision of work being all about me, I start to compare myself to other women and I usually feel two things. I either feel puffed up with pride or deflated with inadequacy. And I think a lot of us can relate to this. I think particularly if you're a mum, sometimes I walk around and I'm like, I am killing it. Look at these kids. They're amazing. And look at my palace. And this is great. And then the next day, I'm like, I failed. Look at this place. This is a dump. And the kids are broken. Someone fix the kids. Um, so, puffed up with pride, deflated with inadequacy. What about you? In your days, are you tempted to walk about puffed up with pride in all that you do or deflated with inadequacy in all that you don't do? Pride, inadequacy, high self-esteem, low self-esteem are both about the self. It is not God's vision for work. And when we twist God's vision for work, we make it about ourselves. we go against the grain of the universe. We go against his good design. And C.S. Lewis so, so helpfully said that when we go against the grain of the universe, it's like going against wood. And when you go against wood, you get splinters. A world where work is about self is a society where we start seeing these splinters. Today, in 2019, I think many of us would would agree we are more affluent, we are more technologically connected, we are more scientifically knowledgeable than ever before. (coughs) But we are seeing splinters in our society. Mark Sayers, who is a pastor down in Melbourne, really helpfully, uh, he critiques culture. And in his recent book, Reappearing the Church, he helpfully puts it like this. Our society is experiencing splinters We are seeing the rise of anxiety and mental health disorders, Mm -hmm. epidemic loneliness and social disconnection, widespread online bullying, Mm -hmm. persistent discrimination, bigotry and hatred, Mm -hmm. addiction to drugs, food, technology, sex and gambling and relationships are widespread. Poor mental health is now normative among emerging generations. And I just think when I read that and I go on social media and I just think this is not the world I want my three daughters growing up in. And this is not the world I want the emerging generations to think is normative. There's got to be more to life than epidemic anxiety and loneliness and disconnection. I think that the reason the world's vision for work about self fails is because humans fail. We have twisted God's vision, we've made it about self, but we are broken people. We are sinful and we just cannot get it right. Mm -hmm. Any vision that requires human striving will always come undone by human failing. Mm -hmm. But despite this, there is hope. And surprisingly, that hope is found (coughs) in a human. One human who did not fail. A human man who was tempted in every way but was without sin. And his name is Jesus. Despite the way we've twisted God's vision 
Through Jesus, we are redeemed to re-enter into God's vision and to co-labour with him as he redeems and restores all things. Colossians 1.20 tells us that through Jesus, God chose to reconcile to himself all things. He's reconciled and redeemed us so that we can live into his vision. And not only that, but Jesus shows us how, how to live into that vision. And this is our final point. Work like Jesus worked. So, God's vision for you in your mothering, your vocation, your volunteering, your ministry, your parenting, your relationships, is that you co-labor with him to redeem and restore all things. But if you're pragmatic like me, the question is, well, how? How do we do that? It's a great vision, but how do we go about doing that? And the answer, I think, is found in the life of Jesus. Because Jesus came here as a man, as a human. For the first 30 years of his life, for some of those, he worked in obscurity, building tables. And then in the last three years of his life, he worked as a teacher and a healer. So how did he work? Well, let's read Philippians 2, 1 to 8, to see how he worked. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, in context, Paul is writing a letter to the Philippians and he's encouraging them to be unified in Christ. But I think when we read this segment of the letter, we see how Jesus worked. Jesus came to earth with work to do, and the way he did that work was by serving. So how do we collaborate with God to redeem and restore all things? We do it by serving. The operating principle for all our work is service. Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Do not live into that twisted vision that work is all about you. Instead, Paul says, in humility, count count others more significant than yourself and look to the interest of others, the interest of our neighbours, our children, our husband, our church family, our employees, our colleagues, friends, enemy, whoever it might be. We look to their interests and we serve. When I wake up most mornings, I confess that my natural inclination is to make it about me. I start, my mind starts thinking my schedule, my family, my children, my home, my achievements. But what this scripture shows me is that I'm called to serve. It's not about me at all. Instead, I need to humble myself and look not to my interests for the day but look to the interests of my husband, my children, my neighbours, my colleagues, the parents I bump into at school. But it's not easy to serve, and I personally find it a daily struggle. 
and I have to stop and remind myself that I am called to serve just as Jesus served. What about you? Are you seeking to serve? Are you slowing down to have that conversation with that neighbour? Get to know them and to serve them. Are you seeking to show your child or your grandchild or all the children in our church that we are all spiritual mothers to? Are you seeking to slow down to show them who God is in the way that you talk to them and pursue them and love them? Are you seeking to serve your husband and spur him on as he leads your family? Are you building relationships and serving your colleagues, your employees, your managers, the cleaner, whoever else is in your workplace? Is your work marked more by serving or by self? Is it marked by dependence on God or by self-sufficiency? Is your work marked more by peace or by anxiety? by rhythms of rest or exhaustion, by thankfulness or by complaining. Like I said, it is not easy, and for me it does not come naturally. In my work as a wife, a mother, a neighbour, a teacher, a researcher, I am tempted to always make it about me. And this leads to splinters in my soul. Frustration, impatience, anger, anxiety, comparison, straight, striving. So what am I to do? And if you're anything like me, what are we to do? If that is our experience. Do we just try harder? Do we just try harder to serve? No. I don't think the answer is pure willpower. I think the answer is found in Philippians 2. Look at verse 1 with me. Paul says, So... If there is any encouragement in Christ. He says, if there is encouragement, comfort, love, participation in the spirit, affection and sympathy, then serve. If you know who Jesus is, then serve. If you have been served by Christ, then serve. It's not about willpower, it's about Jesus. It's about what we've experienced through him. We are able to serve because Jesus first served us. And this is why we say we have to preach the gospel to ourselves. We have to remind ourselves that Jesus was in the form of God, but that he emptied himself, that he came as a servant, and that he endured death on the cross for you and for me. And when I say preach the gospel to yourself, I don't mean just like that that philosophical religious idea of, oh, he died for me, he died for me, he died for me, that doesn't do anything to the heart. I mean preach the gospel to yourself. Preach the intimate, personal, loving relationship he invites you into every day because he loves you. Because Jesus sees the depths of our hearts, doesn't he? He sees our faults. He sees our fears. He sees our failures. He sees our deepest shames. And right in that place, he says, you are loved. So there's hope. Despite our striving and the way we've made it about ourselves, there is hope. Because Jesus took my sin and he took your sin in his body, took it to the cross in utter, bloody, sacrificial love. And he left it all there. 
So we're free. We are free to make it not about us. We are free from ourselves, from our own egocentricity. We are free to abide in him. We are free to obey his life-giving commands and to experience peace. And in that peace, we are free to co-labor with God, to redeem and restore all things through serving in our work. Galatians 5.13 says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. You were called to freedom, brothers. Ladies, we are free. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Do not live into that twisted vision that work is all about you. Instead, through love, serve one another's. Serve others as you co-labor with God in your unique season with your unique giftings to redeem and restore all things until that day in that holy city where we see him face to face. Amen? Amen. Let me pray. (laughs) All right. Dear Lord, we thank you that you have given us an amazing vision for work, Lord. You have made us all in unique and individual ways of individual seasons, but you invite each one of us to co-labor with you, to redeem and restore all things because of what your son has done for us. Thank you for what he has done. Thank you for what he is doing. And we long for that day. Amen. Amen. Now you're Yeah.